Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Taz Bhatia. Dr. Taz is a board-certified integrative medicine physician and the founder of Center Spring MD, a functional medicine practice based in Atlanta. Dr. Taz has written a number of books, and we are very honored to publish her latest book at Goop Press. It's called The Hormone Shift, and I'm so proud that it's officially out in the world today. This is Dr. Taz's guide to better understanding your body and ways to optimize our hormones and move through hormonal changes with ease. She outlines the most effective ways to navigate the five key hormonal shifts in our lives, starting as early as our teenage years. Today, Dr. Taz shares her holistic strategies for balancing hormones, her perspective on hormone replacement therapy, and the tenets of her 30-day plan for anyone looking to raise their baseline and recalibrate at any age. I'm lucky to have had many conversations about hormones with Dr. Taz. She has been such a positive influence in my life, and she has a beautiful approach to medicine and wellness. Perhaps most importantly, though, her approach to perimenopause and menopause is also a powerful reminder that women do not expire during this chapter, as she says. We rise into our power and into our truth. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Taz. Why did why do we get like these migraines during perimenopause? What is that about? It's the hormone fluctuation, the up and the down and the all over the place. I'm right there with you. I don't know. Do you do hormones? Are you I on don't hormone? currently do anything, no. but I like should I can we discuss because is it time some integrative doctors are like, don't do it? 
but I also have like some integrative and functional doctors who are like, absolutely do it. So much confusion. You know, the research that was done in the 90s is erroneous. And that was using bovine or, you know, estrogen, like it wasn't bioidentical and it doesn't cause cancer. But then I don't know. But then it does. But then it does. (laughs) It's enough to drive anybody insane, right? And I think, you know, I'm hoping that we can kind of help everybody navigate this information much better. I do want to come out of the gate saying hormones are not bad. Hormone replacement therapy is not bad. What we are not doing and the reason there's so much confusion and discussion and all this other stuff is we're not bio-individualizing hormone replacement therapy. Okay. What you need might be different than what I need, right? Which might be different w- than what someone else needs. And how do you bio-individualize? You have to understand the whole health picture. I think right. everyone wants to take shortcuts and it's not the way to go. I mean, trust me, I've sat with so many different types of people over the last six or seven months and everyone wants a shortcut. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, when you do shortcuts, you get side effects and you get the negatives. So what I'm trying to say is that Where's your gut health? Where's your nutrition? Where's your sleep? Where's your stress? What are your genetics? You have to look at that and then make a decision about hormone replacement therapy. Mm. So let's talk about me for a second. So I have, and I can actually show you because I happen to bring it, but I have some of my genetic tests. I have a particular gene that does not metabolize estrogen very well. So I need a little bit. What's that gene called? It's the CYP1A1. Okay. So I have a mutation in that gene, alphabet soup. And I don't expect everyone to go and understand all these letters and numbers and stuff like that. My point is, though, that when I take estrogen, I need like a spit dose. I need like 0.25 milligrams once or twice a week at the most, you know, and sometimes even that's too much. But your standard patches, right, like a Viveldot or a Climera or any of these like preparations, you know, those doses are sometimes too much for certain people. If you put one of those on me, I'm going to accumulate estrogen. I'm going to have estrogen dominance. And if I kept going, then I might activate, you know, things that don't need to be activated, right? right? So I can do hormone replacement therapy, but it has to be really gentle, really tiny, and well-monitored. Now, somebody else who doesn't have that gene, they can they can do a heavier-handed dose. Mm-hmm. So no one's wrong. We're just not looking at the whole picture. We're oversimplifying. We are oversimplifying it. Mm-hmm. So... The guys that say, you know, the Vivelle and the Chimera and the conventional prescriptions for hormones are the right things to do, they're not wrong. And the guys over here that are saying, like, bioidentical is a great way to go about hormone replacement therapy, they're not wrong either. Mm -hmm. But we're not thinking about the patient in the middle of this debate, Right. right? And the patient who needs our help, you know, someone like you or me who, you know, need support to navigate this yeah. phase of life. And, you know, instead we are left super confused and batting our heads around being like, yeah. well, what are we supposed to do? And then what do people do when there's too many options? They do nothing. Right. You know, Absolutely. when there's too it's much confusing. information, it's they do too nothing. Much. Yeah, you so. get paralyzed. Exactly. Well, this is part of, you know, the reason I'm so grateful that you wrote this book, which I brought because I want you to sign it yes. to me. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's coming at such an incredible time in my life, obviously, as I'm navigating this crazy perimenopausal roller coaster. But I kind of, I love how you talk about, this book's really for all 
women or people with ovaries or whatever we're supposed to say. Right. <laughs> um, people with parts. People with parts. <laughs> yeah. Because you really do you really do talk about the five phases of of hormones, you know, starting with teenagers yes. and everything. And I I, I want to get to that because, you know, I wish I'd had this book when my daughter was mm-hmm. kind of first going through puberty, et cetera. You know, as I always say when I talk about you, like you're 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 so deeply impressive on so many levels, but you know, there are few medical doctors who kind of did the traditional allopathic path mm-hmm. and kind of came to their own epiphany around integrative functional Eastern medicine and blending all of them, which you've done so beautifully and you're so ahead of the curve. And you know, a lot of a lot of people want to know that if they're getting advice from somebody yes. that they're an MD. Right. And so, and I think that just gives obviously this extra wonderful layer of credibility. So will you tell me a little bit about, even though she's told me this before, <laughs> will you tell us about what that journey was for you, how you had a kind of an aha moment. And I would love for you to talk about you, the path that led you to kind of open up your ideas about how to practice medicine. Yeah, I think, you know, and I know I've shared this with you before privately, but this was a completely accidental journey. It was not what I intended. You know, I am an MD. I am also an adrenaline junkie. So I loved the ER. I was planning on going and doing an ICU fellowship because I liked procedures. I mean, my ICU attending was very disappointed when I didn't pursue the fellowship because I would basically run the unit for him in his absence. And and I didn't intend to go down this road. But what happens with cumulative stress, not taking care of yourself, the role of trauma and grief, which was big in our childhood. What happens with all of that is that when you then enter a highly stressful profession like medicine and you're not sleeping, you're doing night shifts and day shifts and you're all over the place, you're going to crash at some point. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I just, I got sick in the simplest way to say it. I got sick. My symptoms were vague. They weren't clear, right? And they were slow and subtle. So a lot of it was happening over a period of a couple of years and I ignored it and didn't pay attention to it because I had stuff to do and didn't have time for it. And just sort of crescendoed to the point that, you know, I was losing hair so rapidly. My patients in the ER were staring at my scalp, not at what I was saying. You know, I was gaining weight. My joints were hurting. I'm a high energy person and now I can't get out of bed, you know. So all of this just kept building up and building up until... It took my mom and my, you know, now husband to be like, something's not right. You don't look the same. You're not acting the same. I think you need to get this checked out. And so that started this very frustrating journey that patients, unfortunately, today still have mm-hmm. of multiple doctor visits, which I didn't have time for. So it was probably six to eight doctor visits over the span of six to eight months, quite honestly. And they were just really frustrating. It was like, well, I think you're anxious. So take this anxiety medication. I think you're depressed. I think you're stressed. I think, you know, maybe you're having a hormone something, but we don't check hormones, you know. And so it was just sort of like a lot of 
doors getting shut. And finally, I went to a hair loss specialist who handed me a medication and said, you know, I'm 28 at the time. He said, young lady, if you don't take this, you're going to be bald in a couple of years, you know. And so I left there crying. No one wants to be bald by the time they're 30. So I took the medication. Or ever, for that matter. Or ever, right? Good point. So I took the medication. And again, I don't know where my headspace was, but I think it was in the same place where a lot of my patients are, where you're so frustrated, you're so over it that you're like, okay, fine, I'll just do whatever. And I didn't question it. And it's a medication that drops blood pressure. I already have low blood pressure. So on a certain morning, I like go do my workout. I take this medication, I jump in the car and my blood pressure bottoms out. So I'm driving, I pass out, I crash my car. Unfortunately, it always takes something like that to be like, all right, this isn't working. And I've got to figure this out. And from that day, really, I set out to, I'm like, I have to fix this myself. In fact, I was rereading the book recently. And I saw that line. And I, it's like the same sensation came over me, like tears and frustration, that same feeling. I was like, I have to do this myself. So anyhow, I started studying Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, nutrition. I became an acupuncturist, finally did the fellowship in integrative medicine, you know, and had all these pieces and was slowly getting better. But more importantly than me getting better, I was also understanding how the body is so intricately interconnected, right? It's one system. It's one system. It's a whole system and it all needs attention and it all communicates with each other. And so the root of my issues were in hormones and having a fundamental thyroid issue and that in turn was causing everything else. And that thyroid issue was actually caused by my diet more than anything else and my stress levels. So as I put the pieces of my own health together, everybody around me is watching, right? And they're like, well, you know, what did you do for this? Or what did you do for that? And, and I realized that my story was not a lone story. It was a story that so many people around me were going through. And so that was the motivation Mm -hmm. for starting this practice. And it was still supposed to be a hobby. (laughs) So it was a hobby practice that I was supposed to go to once or twice a week and keep working in the ER. You know, my sweet husband was like, you don't have to worry about overhead. This is not a business. This is just, you're really passionate. Just go share your information with everyone. And I was like, I can do that, you know. But obviously, it's a movement. It's a revolution. People are over it. They used to drive from all over the place. had this tiny little space. used to sit on the floor and wait for me, you know. And it was just, you know, a year or two into it, I was like, this can't be a hobby. I've got to go all in. I have to go 100% in. We need to be medical homes for patients. Patients are getting information from all over the place. They can't make decisions because this guy tells them this stuff is wrong and this person tells them this stuff is wrong. And the patient journey through that is just, it feels hopeless. Mm -hmm. So people did what I did, right? You don't do anything, you know, until things really hit the fan. So so I decided that this is my path. And I'm. And you have a center in Atlanta. I have two centers in Atlanta. We have a virtual right. platform and it's 15 years. It's hard to believe. And we've probably had about 35, 40,000 patients walk, you know, walk through our doors collectively in all our locations. And unfortunately, it's the same story. What we, is the story? What's the, what's the biggest common denominator? It's the story of not being heard. It's the story of 
the body not really being considered as a whole, of medicine being delivered in bite sizes, you know. Treating symptoms. Exactly. Well, you've got this symptom. Well, there's this doctor. You have this symptom. Well, there's this doctor, you know. And it's just a very fragmented system of care, you know, and it's fragmented in the exam room and it's fragmented systematically as well. Mm. And so what happens when you have a system like that is that no one gets answers that really work. They get a lot of band-aids, but they don't get true answers to the root of their issues. And so they're left very frustrated, either with a lot of side effects if they're following the traditional path or with a lot of expense if they're following some unforged path of their own, you know, and it's a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, you know, flying over here, you know, I was sitting next to a woman who was looking over my shoulder and and she finally got the courage to ask me. I was working on some content and she was like, are you a hormone person? And I'm like, well, I do have a book (laughs) called The Hormone Shift. And she goes into her story and she was diagnosed with breast cancer at 40. You know, now she's 42. Her entire system's been shut down with all the different medications. And she's like, it's just got to be better than this. There has to be better options for women than me finding out at 40 Mm -hmm. that I was having all these issues, you know? And so I think it's just, we need a different approach. Mm -hmm. We need a different approach, both in how we treat the patient, but also in how we diagnose and how we sort of process information when it comes to a patient. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb dot com slash host. So say, you know, someone is going into their regular doctor now and saying, you know, I I have this, this and this, like, what are the diagnostic techniques that are being implemented in sort of a regular doctor's office versus in your office? Yeah. So in a regular doctor's office, and it's funny, I had this conversation yesterday, we were talking about how nowadays, a lot of times the physical exam's not even being done. It's kind of like, you know, and when I was in med school, you have to touch the patient, you know, that was sort of like 101. And now the younger generation of doctors is barely even touching a patient. But traditionally, it's a good history, it's a good physical exam, right? Then you determine, is there lab work that's needed? Or are there imaging studies that are needed? And you go from there, we're getting even a Away from that traditionally now it seems to be very much about you know filling out questionnaires you know maybe getting some lab work and then interpreting everything based off that lab work and that lab work is incredibly standardized right like almost everybody gets 
pretty much the same stuff unless you have a complaint that's a little bit different. What we're doing is really integrating all the different systems of medicine in our diagnostics. So when you come in, you will get everything. We still do a history. We still do a physical, right? But we want to know, like, your three-day nutrition recall. Like, what did you eat the last three days? So we can get a sense of what's going on. We want to do more of a lifestyle questionnaire. Are you sleeping? You know, what is your work life like? What is your stress like? Who do you live with? These are all things that are very important to us. And then we bring in, you know, diagnostics from Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. We have the tools to do all of those within the practice. And we even bring in energy medicine, you know, because I feel like all of it needs a seat at the table, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very easy to point fingers and say, you know, that's wrong and this is right. But these are things that have been around for thousands of years. Who are we to dismiss that, you know? So we bring all of that together through this diagnostic process. And we do lab work you know so if you need labs we'll do labs and then we do imaging as well so we're bringing it all Mm -hmm. in into these visits and then really getting to know and getting to understand the patient and I think my favorite part is a patient being able to walk out of these experiences knowing who they are like I can like rattle off to you who I am right I have to be gluten-free I have to watch my thyroid you know if I don't watch these then my estrogen gets out of control and all these other numbers start to go haywire but I, I have it down to where it's that specific and most people don't even have that level of knowing mm. about themselves. You Is know? it super expensive to find those things out? No. And that's a myth that I really want to dispel, right? Now, time with the doctor for an hour, sure, there is the cost and a, and a time expense there. But all of these labs, all of the Chinese medicine stuff, all of the Ayurvedic medicine stuff is super cheap. All Mm -hmm. of it is cheap. Chinese medicine diagnostics is looking at you and looking at your tongue. Now, there is technology that we use in the practice, too, but even that technology is not expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, energy sort of diagnostics, same thing, not expensive. And the labs we do, while we do a whole battery of labs, we have a ton of labs that go through LabCorp or Quest and can be done through your regular insurance. So this stuff doesn't have to be costly. And I think that's a barrier that many people set up on both sides, right? If we're going to call this two sides of a fence, I think on both sides, you know, you have the conventional community saying, well, it's super expensive to do all that. That's not possible, you know, and then you have the community over here saying, well, this stuff is necessary. You have to spend the money on it. It's really the middle, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of these labs, even the hormone labs that we talk about, and I do that in the book, you know, you can literally take those labs into a lab core request and get those done under your insurance. There's no reason for any of those that, you know, can't be done and can't be covered, you know. Now, in addition to that, if you do like a Dutch or a ZRT or many of these other tests that are out there, sure, that's helpful information. But is it absolutely necessary? No. So, so many people aren't Mm -hmm. even getting like a level one information out of their medical experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's something I really want to change. So in the book, you talk about teenagers getting a baseline hormone test, right? Which of course, like it makes so much sense, but I never thought about, but just to have like, because, well, in the book, you talk about the five Hormone shifts. Hormone shifts. And when you're a teenager, what are you? You're a... You're a rock star. You're a rock star. (laughs) So that's 13 to 18. Yeah, 13 to 19 is where I said it. So explain why it's important to do a hormone test in this time frame. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about this. I actually feel like everyone should be testing their hormones every year, if not twice a year. And that starts at 13. 
13 is your foundational hormone chemistry. Whatever's happening there at 13, 14, 15 is also going to be happening in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it's really important to understand mm-hmm. like what's happening with hormone levels. How do you balance them? You know, it's not enough to just dismiss them and say, you know, they're teenagers. We don't need to pay attention to this. What we are learning now more than ever is the hormones are not just about hormones, right? Mm-hmm. They are also about our mental health. They're also about our cognitive health. They're about just our general energy and vitality. And so for the teenagers today, when we're talking about anxiety and depression and ADHD and OCD and all of these different disorders where many of these children are ending up on a lot of pharmaceuticals, we're ignoring the role of hormones in that entire equation. And we need to pay attention to it because spikes in hormone levels like high estrogen or high androgens have a mental health component. So it's important to understand what's happening there. We're also not paying attention to how their hormones are impacting things like gut health, which is foundational. So what we're seeing, again, in the exam room is a lot of teenagers dealing with hormonally rooted conditions that are being ignored and labeled as something Mm. else, right? And hormones impact gut health or gut health impacts hormone health? Both. It's bi-directional. So the two are connected. So we want to make sure, and so this is where even, you know, early childhood with what's happening with the gut is going to impact what puberty looks like, right? How many courses of antibiotics a kid is on, how much processed food, for example, all those things. All of those things are going to impact it. And so what we're seeing with the environment today because we do have a more toxic environment, a more toxic food supply, that type of thing, is that more and more girls, you know, teenage girls are having hormonally rooted issues. They're having Mm -hmm. a lot more PCOS. We are seeing earlier and earlier onset of autoimmune diseases, which we didn't see as much before. And then of course, there's all the mental health stuff that goes with that too. Mm -hmm. But you're, I'm sure you're hearing too, like PCOS, POTS, you know, all these different disorders that, you know, we're not as as much of a presence in our time are now pretty commonplace amongst our girls. And I, and I think it's a major issue. Yeah. So as far as like things that disrupt our endocrine systems, you know, thinking about our teenagers and our, our littler girls and our boys too, but yeah. you know, specifically talking about these sort of hormone related, how, how the hormones impact girls, what are the biggest kind of aggressors of these endocrine disruptors? You know, there's so many and this, you know, there's so many different directions for us to go in, but I would always start with food. I really feel like foundationally food is a place that, that we really have to pay attention to the quality of food, the amount of preservatives in food, the amount of sugar in food. I think all of these things are playing a really big role in shifting the hormone profile. After that, it's looking at things like parabens and phthalates, pesticides, I think, are maybe even higher on the list, quite honestly. What we're seeing over and over again is glyphosate. Mm -hmm. You know, and and when we go to test it, we have the capacity to test these things. We don't do it on everyone. But when we go to test it, because we're highly suspicious of like a precocious puberty or, you know, girls having too much androgen or boys having too much estrogen, then we'll find high levels of glyphosate in their system. You know, and glyphosate is a pesticide derivative. And the problem now is it's become so pervasive that even when you're buying organic, you know, there's so much cross 
contamination and it's in our water supply, our air and all this other stuff. So I feel like that's one of the biggest ones is really trying to understand how to handle the pesticide load and then the load and just our day to day Mm. products, right? Plastics and body care and skin care and many of these other categories. Do we see like in other nations that don't allow glyphosate, for example, like I believe the EU doesn't Mm -hmm. allow it, et cetera. And they're certainly far more strict in terms of, you know, like what's allowed in products and sprayed. Like, do do we see a difference? Yes. We see lower rates of many of these hormone conditions and also not as much of a mental health crisis as we see here in the United States. So whether it's everything from sensory processing, right, in the little Mm -hmm. kids where like noise and sound and all that stuff is bothering them to ADD or ADHD to OCD to bipolar, like that's all a spectrum, right? Uh, There's much less in the EU compared to the United States. So we know that, you know, all of these endocrine disruptors are playing into cognitive health, they're playing into hormone health, they're playing into mental health. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just something that I don't know why we can't take action Mm. on this stuff, you know? Well, because it's too profitable. Too profitable. Don't get me started (laughs) on the industrial complexes. Yes, Yes. exactly. (laughs) Oh, right. So Will you talk to me, take me through the five hormone stages? stages. Okay. And I did this so it's easy to remember. So I know they have fun names, but the first one we just talked about, the rock stars, 13 through 19. And, and why I'm, is it the rock star? Because they are like coming into their own and they want to own the world, but they're not quite sure how to do it yet. So there's a little <laughs> bit of that rock star destruction involved as well. But you know what? I mean, we both have children in that group right now and they're adorable with everything that comes out. But it's a lot of instability. I think that's the word I used for it. There's a lot of confusion. It goes to their hormone levels too. They're high one day, they're low one day, you know, they're a little all over the place. So providing them with a certain amount of stability hormonally and then even from an environment standpoint are kind of the primary goals there. And then moving on from them, I call them the hustlers, you know, in our 20s. I was there, I'm sure you were too, like just burning the candle at both ends. You know, you could drink for five days and then go work for another, you know, six straight, you know, whatever it is we were doing, you know, and we thought we were invincible, right? There's no way anything could harm us or damage us or things like that. But that's where, you know, again, these hormone shifts start to, they're talking to us, but we're ignoring it. So we start to see the effects of cortisol and adrenal fatigue and some of those type of things starting to show up. And then from there, right around 28-ish, which is exactly where I got sick, and I'm noticing a lot of women coming through the practice that's exactly where things are starting to show up for them. That is the next stage. I call that more of the superstar stage. That's usually when there's some settling down and maybe you're thinking about starting a family or if you're not starting a family, you're at least in a little bit more of a rhythm than you might have been in your early 20s. And so that's the next shift. But it's also one of the first shifts where hormone levels actually do start to go down. So this is where, depending on how you lived your life, which is a very Chinese medicine concept, how much chi do you have? How much energy do you have? You know, your progesterone levels will start to decline, not dramatically, just a little bit. So this is where women may start to see things like their periods start, are starting to get a little bit heavier. You know, they might be trying to get pregnant. So pregnancy can be easy or 
hard or they're postpartum and they really experience sort of what that hormone shift feels Mm. like. But it is the beginning of the juggling phase, which is soon to come, which is the next one, the superwoman phase. And those really are women in perimenopause. That's roughly 36, 37 through about 50-ish. And, you know, even into the early 50s. And I call them superwomen because Mm. they are doing it all. Are in hell. They are doing it all. (laughs) They are juggling 50 million balls, right? Mm -hmm. You have family, parents, jobs. You're usually like climbing in your career at this point. You know, you're leading teams, whatever it might be. So they're super stressed and they're frazzled. And oftentimes they feel like they don't have enough support and we're seeing it in their hormones. So this is where we see progesterone levels further decline. So they're declining naturally anyway, but then the stress is exaggerated. Yeah, it's exaggerated. So a lot of this is natural, right? Like older systems of medicine saw these shifts as very natural, but they were not supposed to be this dramatic, you know, like, uh, you know, undoing of a woman. And so, you know, in, in that phase, that perimenopause phase is kind of where the shit hits the fan, depending on how you lived mm. your 20s and your early 30s. And now there's fuller expression of all of that. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see hormone decline, lower progesterone levels for sure. We're seeing slightly lower estrogen levels. This is where thyroid stuff often shows up. You know, this is where the thyroid really starts to express itself as maybe needing more support. Cortisol is getting wonky. So we're really starting to wrestle with, you know, with what's happening in the hormone puzzle. And then there's menopause, right? And I call them commanders because, you know, most women approach menopause with fear and with a sense of depression, like this is the ending, right? This is the closing of a chapter, you know, or of my history as a woman. I'm done. I'm not fertile anymore, so I'm done. And instead, what Eastern systems of medicine gifted us with is that this is actually a time that you sort of give birth to yourself. This is actually a time where you fully come into your own. You should be fully aligned with who you are and what you're supposed to contribute, you know, to the world and to society. And that is the approach we really want women to have. So I call them commanders because I feel like they need to be like, hey, guys, I'm leading this, you know, like, no, 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 we're doing it this way, you know. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing hormonally there is, yes, they are depleted, right, meaning low estrogen, low progesterone. Oftentimes thyroid is unstable and needs a little bit of support. But there are ways to replete those things before you even talk about hormone replacement therapy. And that's what I'm really passionate about. Like there's so much energy around the word menopause and talking hormone replacement therapy, right? Which is great as we started, right? Hormones are an option. They aren't bad. But there's all this other stuff you can do and nobody talks about Mm -hmm. it. Everything from optimizing, you know, your diet and your nutrients and your gut health and cleaning up your liver, looking at your emotional well-being and stress, all of these things play into if you're really going to embrace being a commander or you're going to play into the tired dialogue of, of being expired or being old and then running, right, to do all these different things to not make you feel that way anymore. And that's what I'd really like to see flip. Mm. It's interesting that you say, you know, if you think about this time in our lives where we lose fertility and that there's, there is a big shift there, right? Mm -hmm. There's grief around, you know, what does it mean if I'm not sexually viable in that way, right? And we spend basically you know, decades of our lives in this phase where we want to be reproductively viable and we want to be sexually attractive. And it's obviously so deeply biological. Mm -hmm. And then, and then as 
as the women who give birth, we then, you know, put so much into our children and their development. And it just struck me when you said that, that, you know, this idea that we can't really, biologically maybe, we can't really give birth to ourselves until we can't give birth to anybody else. Absolutely. Until that biologically is done because we're just wired in such a different way for evolution. And I love this idea that you know, okay, so we're closing that door and how great. And now it's a good thing. It is a good thing, you know, because we spent most of our lives caring for everybody else, you know, really putting energy into everyone and everything. And we still will do that. It doesn't mean you enter menopause and you don't do that anymore, but it's finally where like, there's a second to breathe, you know, and, and think about you, you know, are you a commander? Do you have to be fully in menopause before you're a commander? I think I defined it that way. Of course, everything's fluid, right? We are fluid beings. So ideally, yes, but you should be working towards that. I talk a lot in the book about the journey up. And what I mean by that is that we should be working through all the phases to that sense of alignment where we are able to come into our own as we hit that. Yeah. And look, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of no joke because... All, at all the other shift points in our lives that are like sort of more culturally acceptable. And I don't know, you know, for me, especially last year when I turned 50 and my daughter went to college mm-hmm. and I was starting to really suffer from these perimenopausal symptoms, I was like, there's no sort of model here that I can go to for when your children start to leave the nest and, you know, and you're losing this like viability that is kind of inculcated into us that, you know, it's like, whereas, oh, it's, it's totally acceptable to have a kid and be postpartum or to get your period. But this one feels particularly like there's something wrong with it, you know, or it it has up until now. I mean, I'm so grateful that there are so many women talking about this now and, and sharing their stories and, creating businesses around it mm-hmm. and because we're, we're, we're really in need. And I'm just grateful that your concentration is on this stuff, especially as it pertains to, you know, the whole picture. Because for me anyway, the nutrition piece and really being incredibly conscientious about what I'm eating and not eating has made a huge impact huge. on my hormonal yep. changes through these last couple of years. You know, when I was drinking tons of alcohol Mm -hmm. and eating tons of gluten and dairy and sugar and just like not being cognizant or mindful, I was having much, much worse symptoms of all of this stuff. And I still feel like I'm now getting to a point where I really maybe need some augmentation. (laughs) And there's, and, and that's the thing, like I am all for hormones as we started. I think there are actually, you know, at the North American Menopause Society came out with a statement in 2022 that women actually do better on hormones. The 10 years around menopause, 50 to 60-ish, roughly, like the cost, the benefits way outweigh any sort of negatives when it comes to hormones and hormone replacements. So the research is changing, you know, the positioning is changing. But again, in the exam room, many of those doctors are still kind of subscribing to what they learned originally where hormones are bad, hormones are evil. But even with the hormone conversation, I mean, I think hormone replacement therapy goes better 
when you've done this other work, when you've really paid attention to your nutrients and what your gut health is doing and, mm-hmm. you know, your sleep quality and so much more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do those. And that's what we do in the book, right? The 30-day plan is all about more of a holistic plan, like laying that foundation as if you were building a home, like laying that down mm-hmm. and then make a decision, right? Let's talk about this great 30-day plan 30 for a minute. 30-day plan. Because yes. it's, it's, re- it's very brilliant and... I think easy to follow and applicable really to anybody going through any hormone shift, yes. right? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about it and then anecdotally like you had people do it and what what was the outcome, etc. The plan is very much what I do in practice to be honest, you know, it's because you're impossible to get into. You have a long wait list. (laughs) We have a great team. But but no, I mean, this is very much what we do in practice, right? So yes, and we've had people do it. And this is, they land the majority of our patients after doing these 30 days, I would say the majority land where they're in a really good shape, and they don't necessarily need hormone replacement therapy right away. But it's a decision we can table for a period of time before we enter back into that because they're feeling so good just doing the plan. Mm. The plan is based on a combination of Eastern and Western medicine, like many things I do. So the first week is all about this idea of repletion. You know, So again, I don't care how old you are. Again, we're focused on perimenopause and menopause, but many women are walking around depleted. They don't have the basics or the fundamentals of energy, the tools to build energy. So the first week of the plan is all about building energy and building chi. I'm literally from a biochemical standpoint trying to push oxygen into your cells and how do we do do. that so and that's all by choosing the right foods it's really a food-based strategy in the beginning so it's by really upping things like how much protein you're getting in and getting it in in a consistent basis adding in things like green smoothies that have not only the fiber you need for hormone balance but also provide you with an indirect reserve and resource of glutathione which is an antioxidant which just floods the cells with oxygen and then adding in other high glutathione foods. I feel like glutathione is a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to building energy and reversing many of the perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms like brain fog, poor sleep, poor libido, many of these things. So that first week is really about combining food with maybe a couple of nutrient supplements to help you just build energy. And then we move on from there into the second week, which is more about gut and liver cleanup. Now remember the Eastern concept of hormone balancing is that you can't take the gut and liver out of the equation. Right. You have to have a healthy gut. You have to lower your toxic load. So it's helping everyone understand like what is their greatest source of toxicity currently in their lives and how do they deal with what that? are common sources of toxicity? I mean, I think we talk a lot again about food, about body care, about skin care, indoor air quality, right? The water you're drinking, alcohol, These, alcohol is a big one. Sugar, sugar is sugar is a big one. And then the big other food groups are things like gluten and dairy preservatives, all of those increase your toxic load and make it harder on the gut to do the work it needs to do. Chinese medicine, Eastern medicine talks about the emotional load of toxicity, right? So if you're in a toxic relationship, if you are Mm -hmm 
chronically upset or grieving or angry. Anger is a big thing. They talked a lot about liver, in right? Chinese medicine. It wears the liver down. It impairs your ability to detoxify. Mm-hmm. So there's an emotional piece to this too. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, so the second week is all about cleaning up the gut, cleaning up the liver, trying to get that part situated. So we're reducing inflammation. We're helping you detox. Then by the time you get to the third week, we're actually ready to identify what your main hormone pattern is. And this is, you know, many many people can probably relate to this where they're going to read an article or they read a book, you know, and they love the information in it. So they go do that plan for a little while and then they switch and they go do this other plan. And next thing you know, they're bringing me like a bag of 80 different things that they're taking, right? What I wanted to do was to avoid all of that and be like, okay, we want to know you. And since I can't see you necessarily in the exam room, can we identify your dominant hormone pattern and build a protocol around that? Mm -hmm. So there is a test by the time you hit that third week of like, what's your hormone type? Which one are you? There are a couple of main types. And then we customize the plan based off that type. And so you go into building a plan for you. Mm. And then the last part of it is bringing in the mind-body component, the role of stress, where emotions play into this to help you keep all of that balanced as you go then into managing and navigating hormone Mm. shifts. So I sort of set you up and prep you for how far can you get doing these things and how much better can you feel and how much more can you learn about yourself before we make a hormone decision. I I feel like that's just such a wonderfully responsible way to approach something, right? It's like in our culture, I think we, as you said, it's just like, okay, here's a pill for that. But it's so honoring of the body to kind of set it up for its most optimal functioning Mm -hmm. and then see, right? See sort of what your energy levels are, what your hormones are doing, how irritable are you, how much are you bleeding, like whatever the case may be. And and I, I really love that idea of kind of building a foundation, sort of letting the body get to a place where it can honestly convey where the imbalances are as opposed to all these other things. Totally. That I mean, the body has a lot of infinite wisdom and knowledge we're just not listening you know and so the more we can learn to listen and communicate with what we've been given i think we're able to just do no harm and and actually take Mm -hmm. ourselves to another level and i think the reason i'm so passionate about this is i've literally sat there and watched how people can make decisions like really big decisions about their life from a place of darkness where their hormones are off, they don't feel good, you know, all this other stuff. But if you took the time and energy to correct that, would you make those same decisions? And the answer is often no, but it has serious life consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, there are interesting studies that actually tie low estrogen low testosterone, low progesterone with low serotonin and low dopamine. Those are our feel-good chemicals, right? If we don't have any serotonin and dopamine, you know, your partner, you know, things you might have loved once, you know, are now super annoying and irritating, you know? (laughs) So it's impacting many aspects of our lives. So I almost Mm -hmm. feel like it's our responsibility to advocate for ourselves, to learn to listen Mm -hmm. to our bodies, to understand what it needs, and then to really work on optimization so that we make our best choices Mm -hmm. and we really stand in our power. Otherwise, I always go back to your movie. I swear that movie. It's like that movie Sliding Doors. <laughs> Do you know that movie by any chance? I remember that movie. I mean, it's Barely. like that movie. Otherwise, you make 
a different set of choices, right? And so, you know, that's why we really want everyone to to get it, you know? So, you know, what do you recommend for women who are kind of feeling unheard? We go into our doctor's mm-hmm. office and say, you know, I feel this, I feel low. Maybe they want to describe an antidepressant for what you're talking about right. instead of doing kind of like a deep dive. I mean, I do think that we have to be our own quarterbacks in a certain way. That's what you said at the beginning. And I mean, I have felt that very much for myself as well. And, you know, I, I'm a voracious learner and mm-hmm. I like to understand, you know, all of the possibilities and all of the, you know, potential causes of everything. But still, like, I would love to be able to partner, you know, like yeah. so many women would love to be able to partner with their doctor to say, so how can we kind of embody this idea of like being our own quarterback and and are there other doctors like you out there in 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 cities and how can how can people connect with them? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And it's a big part of my mission too, honestly. Personally, I feel like we need a revolution in medicine. We need a revolution in women's health. But until we get that, you know, what do you do? Here's what I've learned. It doesn't even matter how much the doctor knows. What matters more is, is the doctor a team player or is the doctor more in the patriarchal model of medicine where you do as I told and there's no further conversation, you know? And there are many doctors, you know, in conventional medicine that are open and they want to be collaborative and they want to sit with you through this journey and they want to figure it out with you. And I've, you know, had lots of referrals from doctors across the country who are like, I don't know all this stuff, but this doctor does. So please go to her and we will all three figure it out together, you know, and that's really beautiful. Right now. And, you know, let's say you can't find a doctor like that. Well, then look in the integrative world, right? There's a huge pool now, thankfully, of physicians that did the program that I did at the University of Arizona. So there's an integrative medicine fellowship that shows clearly on a map where all their graduates are. And most of us think very similarly. And then there's the Institute of Functional Medicine with lots of functional medicine graduates. They do the same. They have, you know, all the different names of mm-hmm. people that have, like, gone and done that type of training. And most of the doctors in that community do think this way, more expansively, more holistically, putting different parts of the body together. But I think at the end of the day, no matter the training, Mm -hmm. I think medicine gets really caught up in training, right? Having a partner, having someone who's collegial in your care is the key to success, you know, and I think that's what you're looking for. Yeah, and not somebody who's going to make you feel shame or diminished, you know, or if you read something, like, dismiss it because you read it online or, you know. No, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, the consumer has changed. Women now, you know, we never used to speak up, you know, in the exam room. And now women have information at their fingertips. Medicine needs to evolve in terms of its Mm. delivery. And, and, you know, I hope to be a part of that and really help educate doctors and, and set more doctors up to do this type of medicine. Right. That's one of my personal goals. But, but meanwhile, you know, it's like use your resources, you know, find the people in your community that will do that with you, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is happening when hormones make you not be able to sleep and have anxiety? And what hormones are those? And this is happening to me a lot right no. now. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, there's the whole... So not sleeping is usually the loss of estrogen and progesterone. So when those hormones go down, progesterone more specifically, cortisol levels go up. And then your heart races when you're in bed, you're trying to go to sleep and you're exhausted and you can't sleep. Wired but tired, right? Is that the yeah. fra- that's the phrase? That's wired it. but tired, yeah. So I mean, that's what's that's what's happening, you know, with that pattern, and that creates the anxiety. So that's often why people end up on anxiety medications or sleep medications. But it's really hormone balancing that probably needs to happen. Mm. And then, when are you supposed to get your hormones tested? Because isn't it like a moving target all the time? I love this question. So I have a little bit of a different stance on this. So I've heard everything from test your hormones on day three, to test them on day 21, to all this other stuff. We have established standards in the practice, just get your hormones checked, period, end of story. As long as you know where you are in your cycle, a good practitioner or provider can interpret based off that. So you go and get your hormones done tomorrow, you come back to me and tell me, well, that was day four. I'm like, okay, great. I know day four, estrogen levels are going up, progesterone's usually a little bit low, but there are absolutes where progesterone should never be lower than this particular number and estrogen should never be higher than this particular number. And if you're falling out of those absolutes, we know you have an issue. The other thing is when you're testing more comprehensively, and we talk about this in the book, what what you can test, and you can do all of these tests, by the way, through regular regular labs, then you can actually look at the whole hormone pathway. So you're not as dependent on time of day. Mm. You can look at estrone, you can look at 17-hydroxyprogesterone. I mean, there are all these metabolites. And you can look at them all and put the hormone puzzle together. So I, we don't want to make this any harder for busy women than it already is, right? Just get them checked, you know, right. and use the resources in the book to help you interpret them if you don't have a provider that can do it for you. And at what point do you recommend people start thinking about hormones? If they do the 30-day and they're yep. kind of raise their baseline, you know, the you know the liver's functioning a bit better, the gut's probably a bit healthier. I always think in 90-day increments. So if you've done the 30-day plan, give it a month or two, right? That gets you to the end of 90 days. If you're not seeing, Continuing, though, on the trajectory of eating better. Eating and, better, right. and hopefully you're going to be self-motivated because you're feeling better overall to continue on some of the main principles of the plan. I would say if you hit that 90-day mark and you're not feeling good still, you're not sleeping, you're anxious, it's time to think about hormones mm-hmm. and start really thinking about what what is going to work best for your body when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. And, you know, again, we're, we're thinking about women in perimenopause and menopause, but I was on hormones in my 20s when I got sick because mm-hmm. I had depleted myself so badly that I needed progesterone back then. Correct. Right. So even for the younger women listening, you know, if there are that depleted, then they may actually need something if they've done all the other work. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a good friend I was texting with today who, you know, she's young and her mother went through menopause at 43 and she was put on estrogen replacement. She says it's been a complete game changer Mm, for her. Yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah. It makes a big difference. You know what I would love to know is, will you tell us a little bit about all of the different, well, actually I have two questions. Okay. My first question is, I get asked by a lot of friends, you know, for example, someone who is concerned about breast cancer, either from, you know, a genetic point of view, or can't sort of shake this myth about hormones Mm -hmm. causing cancer unilaterally, and they want like an herbal 
hormone balancer. Are there things that you can take herbally? There are. There are a lot of herbal hormone balancers out there. There are some that are weakly estrogenic. And I know some oncologists have come out and said, well, we don't want you on that either. I think that's a little extreme, but I would always want anyone to have a conversation. Again, it's that team, you know, it's that team mentality. Let's have a conversation and and talk about this. But yeah, there's a whole host of of different herbs that help with hormones. There are things like Don Kwai that helps with very low estrogen. There's red raspberry leaf, black cohosh, maca, helps with both libido and with estrogen. You know, you've got herbs that help to block the overproduction of androgens and that is a menopause pattern for some mm. women and those are things like salt palmetto and choline there are herbs that boost progesterone like vitex chaseberry you know evening primrose oil all of these things you know we talk about in the book and you know I talk about a lot over and over again as options to use if you're having hormonally based symptoms for sure mm. and then what about you know People have trochies and creams yeah. and patches yeah. and this and that. So all these different forms yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. There are many different ways to take hormones. You can do everything from a topical cream, which ideally goes on your bikini line or in your vaginal folds. That's the best absorption for those creams. You can do vaginal hormones, right, where they're vaginal inserts. That's a way to take hormones as well. Trochies are dissolvable, so they dissolve under the tongue. And then you have patches that you actually have to wear. And then, of course, there are pills. Do we miss anything? We miss pellets. You know, pellets are the big gun hormones that they'll implant or send into your system. I've never heard of that. I'm not the biggest fan of pellet therapy because it gives a very high dose of hormones very quickly. And I don't love that because it's not really the way the body works. Mm -hmm. So there are pros and cons to that. People feel great initially, but then down the road, they start having some issues with it. So at the end of the day, it's what are you, the patient, going to be the most compliant with? Are you good about putting a cream on every night or, you know, five or six nights a week? Are you going to forget, you know, or are you going to take a pill or would you rather have something dissolve? Again, it's not a one size fits all. Everybody right. needs to do this. It's really so it's a lot about just being honest. Like, what are you going to remember? You know, I hate pills personally, so I'm going to do better with the cream because I already have other stuff I take, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't want one more pill or trochee. So I prefer cream. I have patients that hate that. So they would rather do a dissolvable under the tongue. So it's again, working with someone to figure out what they want. Nothing. I want to get rid of like, this is good and this is bad and this is right. And this is wrong. I want to get rid of all of that. Right. It's really what is going to work for you, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think you've got to think about your life and yourself. There are a lot of women I see that travel. They don't want to pack you know, a bunch of messy creams and stuff like that. That's not realistic for them. You know, so it's trying to understand what is going to be the most realistic. And then the follow-up to that is what's actually giving us results. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the creams, the bioidentical creams, don't raise, you know, hormone levels to a therapeutic point. So we often have to switch if that's the case. So it's, again, what's going to work for the person sitting in front of us. Mm -hmm. What is your hope for the book, like in terms of, you know, how it impacts women, what do you hope that it achieves? You know, there are things I want the book to achieve at different levels. I think for the individual reader, 
I hope it empowers them with information to really be able to take ownership of their health, to feel confident when they go into the exam room, to not feel like they're crazy or it's in their head or aging is normal, like really dispelling kind of these tired, you know, dialogues and mantras that we've been hearing for generations, right? Mm -hmm. That's my first goal of the book, that whoever picks it up and reads it is really empowered to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And then my second hope is that they become not only empowered to take care of themselves, but they almost reach out to the other women around them, whether it's their daughters or their sisters or their moms or whoever it is. And we pass this on, right? And ultimately, my goal for the book is that it's a revolution in women's health, that we really shift and change how it's delivered in the exam room, how we talk about it, you know, and how we even think think about hormones and hormone shifts for the generations to come. I really feel like it's time. I think we've been in a patriarchal model of medicine since, you know, the late 1800s. So we're a solid 150, almost 200 years into it. I think it's time to change that a little bit and go back to where women were healers and healers of communities and actually had a lot of respect and authority for that. So I'd like to see medicine change. Amazing. Well, it was a real honor for us to publish this book at Goop. We are so, so thrilled and honored that you chose us. It's a big moment for us, and and you've been such a positive influence in my life. Oh, my goodness. Thank and, you. Um, and I'm just so happy that you were able to join us today on the Goop podcast. Ah, my pleasure, and so proud of all the work you guys are doing. I couldn't be more than thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to today's conversation with Dr. Taz Bhatia. For more from Dr. Taz, I hope you'll pick up a copy of her new book, The Hormone Shift. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. 